good morning and welcome to Scottsdale. I love it when it takes so long to take up the offering. It's just so good. <laughs> Always a good thing. So, uh, well, we're so glad that you're here this morning. If you are first or second time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as the senior pastor here. And we are finishing up a series today that we have called Free. And what we've been looking at um, is the freedom that we have in Christ, the way the enemy wants to steal that freedom, and what Jesus does to continue to give us that freedom as we can walk in the freedom that we have in him. Before we finish our last message on that this morning, I just want to let you see what's coming down in the next several weeks. Next week, we have a standalone message where our associate pastor to family ministry, Josh Hansen, is going to be preaching next Sunday. And so you're going to be very blessed next week to have Josh come and to speak to us. It'll be a standalone message, which means I have no idea what he's preaching on, but he'll let me know this week. But he will have the opportunity to lead us in that. Then the week after that, we're going to start a new series that we're calling Everything, and that series is dealing with 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter teaches us that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. And so we're going to take that, unpack those verses, and it's going to take us about six weeks to work through all the things that Peter tells us that we have that sets us not only free, but gives us everything we need. That leads us all the way up to October the 20th. We're already up to October. Now, October the 20th is a very important day in the life of our church because on October the 20th, we are going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary at Scotts Hill. We are 40 years old. In fact, we actually, that anniversary has actually come and gone. That was on June the 10th. We were 40 years old, but who wants to have an outside celebration on in June, so we're waiting till October, and all of our services are going to be the same times. We're gonna, we've are gonna we been working on this, and we've had two planning sessions in this already as we're planning an incredible time of celebration together. You're not going to miss October 20th. This is one of those Sundays that we're going to only have one shot at because it's our 40th anniversary only once, and many of us won't be around for the next um, 10 year anniversary so what we want to do is we want to have an incredible time of celebration we need your help on some things we're going to have dinner on the grounds afterwards we're going to have all kinds of activities for family to enjoy our time together and our fellowship together but we are putting together a service and we need some photographs of maybe some things that you might have Maybe you go back 40 years here, maybe um, in 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. If you have some photographs that you think can help us in the celebration of that, we'd ask you to just take those photos right on the back of them, put them in an envelope with your name on them, and bring them to our church office. The reason we're doing that is we want to scan them so that way we have a consistent quality of scanning through those 40 years, and uh, we want to be able to capture all of those in a way. We'll mail those back to you. If you have anything digitally, we will get you some information on how you can get that to us later, but October the 20th is an incredible time. Today, we're concluding our series on free, and what I want to conclude with is a topic that seems to be one of the hottest topics that we have discussed in this whole series. We've talked about that in Christ we are free and that we are not to be subject to a yoke of slavery again. But the enemy, the devil, 
is always working against the children of God and he wants to use our freedom and take it away and enslave us in some certain areas. We've talked about some of the areas. He wants to use fear. He wants to use discouragement. He wants to use worry. He wants to use guilt. He wants to use temptation. He wants to use resentment. And all of these things he wants to use against us. But today is one that we are seeing ratcheting up all around us. And it is anger. And we are probably living at the most angriest time in our lives as a country that we can remember. Matter of fact, if you look at statistics, you see that the anger is really ratcheted up. That there is a crescendo of people who are mad all the time. You turn on a television, you turn on cable news, you look at the newspaper, you talk to people you work with. People seem to be angry. So this week what I did was I googled the word rage and I googled the word outrage. And as I looked at the different kinds of rages, these are some of the most common results that come up. Road rage, voter rage, air rage, parking rage, surfer rage. Desk rage, is that a thing? Office rage, fishing rage, jogger rage, biking rage, trucker rage, conservative rage, liberal rage, shopping cart rage, checkout line rage, vegan rage, dancers rage, gardeners rage, and I'm not kidding you, yes, knitters rage. Now, I want you to know, of all these kinds of rages, this knitter's rage is the most dangerous. They do carry a long needle. But we, we seem to be outraged by so many things. And it's almost comical. It's ridiculous that we're mad about so many things. Matter of fact, it used to be that we had a rage as a nation that unified us. There was a time when we were outraged. It brought unity to the country. Pearl Harbor. The country was outraged by this atrocity committed to us and upon us that had united our country together. 9-11 outraged Americans because of the injustice that was done on our citizens. And it actually brought a unity. But I want to tell you, the kind of rage today is dividing us and not unifying us. We are outraged by the most outrageous things. That there's no sense of unity and everybody seems to be mad at everybody else. This week I poured over some recent statistics. And some of the most recent statistics of anger popped up and here they are. 64% of people said America is becoming an angrier place. Do you agree with that? 28% of people worry about how angry they sometimes feel. 12% say they have trouble controlling their anger. 32% said they have a friend or a family member who has trouble controlling their anger. 20% said they ended a relationship or a friendship with someone because of how they behaved when they were angry. I want to tell you about anger. It, It crosses all demographic lines. It does. And it's not based upon one generation. We find it across the spectrum. I was reading about an elderly lady who was going to a shopping mall. And she was in her rather large SUV. And she was pulling up close towards the front. And there was a car that was pulling out. 
And as she waited on the car, she did everything right. She put her blinker on. She let everybody know she was about to pull in that parking spot. As she's waiting patiently, the car backs out. And she waits for the car to pull forward before she can move to the parking spot. As the car was moving forward, this small compact car just zipped right in. And out stepped this young girl. And she slammed the door and started walking toward the mall. And the elderly lady wrote her window down. She says, young lady, young lady, I'm sorry. I was waiting for that place. And she looked at her and she said, well, grandma, this is what you can do when you're young and quick. And just walked right to the store. And as she was walking, she heard the crashing of metal. She looked back and this lady in this SUV was just slamming her car and just making it even more compact. The girl was surprised. She says, what are you doing? The lady rolled her window down. She said, that's what you can do when you're old and rich. Now, I know some of you millennials are upset because I stereotyped you in that. And some of you older folks are upset because you think I stereo. Well, all of you just need to build a bridge and get over it. Let's move. Okay. But here is anger. You see, that's the kind of stuff that we deal with today. And what does God's word say about anger? Believe it or not, God's word has a lot to say about anger. And when we look at anger and this issue of anger, we need to understand where it comes from. We need to understand, okay, is there a good kind of anger? Is there a bad kind of anger? What does God's word say to us? The Apostle Paul, who's one of the premier Christians in the New Testament, brilliant beyond any understanding, writes in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 26 and 27, and then in verse 31, he addresses the issue of anger. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to there. If you don't have a Bible, our listening guide has the scripture in there, and it will be on the screen. But the Apostle Paul, writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians is known as Paul's crown jewel of his letters. And he begins all of his letters with deep theology and deep doctrine. And this is probably one of his greatest letters dealing with doctrine. This in the book of Romans. Colossians follows after it. But Paul spends the first three chapters dealing with doctrinal issues. And then he deals with chapters 4, 5, and 6. He deals with very practical matters. In verses 26 and 27, he deals with the issue of anger. Before we jump into this, would you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust your word as truth and authoritative for our lives. We ask, Father, this morning that you would use these passages to inform us about anger. And, Father, that you would use them to transform our hearts with respect to anger. Help us to understand what you want us to see. Convict our hearts, Father, where we need to repent and ask your forgiveness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 26. Be angry. Interesting, isn't it? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's really interesting. He begins with an imperative, which is a command. He tells us to be angry. And the very first point, interestingly and surprisingly, is I am to display a righteous anger. I am to display a righteous kind of anger. That is a command. And he's commanding us 
to have a righteous anger about us. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying it is possible for you and me to be angry and not be sinful. There is the possibility for you and me to have the kind of anger that isn't sinful. God has a righteous anger. And God does nothing that is sinful. We can have that. Let me tell you what Paul is not saying. Listen to me carefully. Paul is not saying that you and I are free to vent our anger at any time, at any moment, for any reason. He's not saying if you're driving down Market Street and somebody cuts in front of you, you have the freedom to just vent it and scream at them and, let, and blast them out. Or if your husband upsets you or your child upsets you or somebody at work upsets you, he's not saying to vent your anger. That's pop psychology. Pop psychology tells us this. If you vent your anger, you'll feel better. No, statistics tell us if you vent your anger, you become an angry person. Solomon knows this. In Proverbs 29, 11, he says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You can have anger and not sin. The Lord Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfect life. And we can find through the pages of Scripture that there are times where he was righteously angry. Let me give you two illustrations. John chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is in the temple. The temple is filled with merchants who are selling their wares and exchanging money. And it's filled with people who have come to the Passover to sacrifice lambs for the Passover. Jesus is so angry that he takes some cords and he makes a whip out of it and he drives the merchants out of the temple. How was that righteous anger for Jesus? Let me tell you what was going on. When the people went to the temple, they went to sacrifice and they brought a lamb. In order to have the right lamb, it had to be spotless. It could not have any blemish to it. The priest's job was to study and look at the lamb examine the lamb, and if the lamb had no blemishes, then they could sacrifice that lamb. Here's the problem. The priest and the merchants were together in this deal. The priest would say to the people, oh no, there's a spot on this lamb. This lamb is imperfect. You cannot sacrifice this lamb, but here's what you can do. Trade your lamb in for one of ours and pay extra money, and you can sacrifice one of our lambs we have. And they would take that person's lamb and they would put it in the sheep pen. And they would give them another one out of the sheep pen. Well, the next person that came along did the same thing. And this person who put his sheep in there, that sheep was given to him and his went back there. And what they were doing was circling, cycling the sheep around and everybody was paying extra money. And they were robbing the worshipers of their worship. It was religious extortion that was going on. And Jesus was angry with that. And not only that... But this took place in the court of the Gentiles. And the only place where the Gentiles could go to worship God would be in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go into the sanctuary where the Jews went. And so they were blocking off and shutting off the only place that the Gentiles had to worship. And Jesus was righteously indignant because the way they treated God and they treated people and they treated his house. Another time was in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is in a synagogue. It's on the Sabbath. A man with a withered hand comes in, and Jesus is getting ready to heal him. And all the Pharisees are watching. This was a trap because they didn't want Jesus to work on the Sabbath. And it says that Jesus looked at them and was angry. Why? He knew their heart. They wanted to condemn him if they healed the man and they cared nothing for the man. 
This is righteous indignation. What is righteous anger? Here's a definition. It's anger that's directed at injustice against people and against God. That's a righteous anger. It's when it's directed, it's some injustice that's directed against innocent people or it is directed against God and his character. Jesus displayed righteous indignation. And let me tell you, there should be times in our lives as believers where we are righteously angry. There are some times when we should be angry at things the way God is angry at things. Let me explain this to you. One of my favorite commentators who is now with the Lord is John R.W. Stott. He's written a number of things. He's a great, he was a great pastor, great teacher, great professor. And here's what he writes about this whole thing of holy indignation. He said, I, I say, this is what he's writing, I say that there is a greater need in contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. There should be a time when we are righteously indignant. But here's what I believe has happened to the church. We have been so consumed by our culture that we have assimilated into the culture many ways. And the things that we should stand against, we now tolerate. And righteous indignation, if it ever comes in our heart, seems so foreign. Because it doesn't fit our culture. What should we be righteously indignant about? Let me give you a few. We should have a righteous anger over the slaughter of innocent human beings. Amen? We should have a righteous anger over the injustice shown to people because of the color of their skin. Amen? We should have a righteous anger over the corruption of elected officials. Amen? We should have a righteous anger over the abuse of others. Amen? We should have a righteous anger over the sins in the church, including our own. Amen? You know, it's an amazing thing. is we have lost sight, I think, of a lot of what righteous indignation is and how do we express ourselves in it. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 52 says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. The apostle Paul was one who had a righteous indignation. He was angry at things but did not sin. When he's in Athens, he sees the immorality of the city. He sees all of the idols and the idol worship. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 17, it says his spirit was provoked within him. He could not walk through that city as a traveler or as someone on vacation. He began to preach the gospel. He was very gracious. He was very sensitive. He was very kind. But he preached against the nature of that city. And he stood and he spoke honestly. From that very city was another philosopher. His name was Aristotle. 
And Aristotle said this, a person who is angry on the right grounds against the right persons in the right manner at the right moment and for the right length of time deserves great praise. Righteous indignation always reflects the righteous character of God. And when God stands against something, we should stand against something. And what makes God righteously angry, we should have the same kind of anger towards. Now, here's the difficult thing. While you and I know there should be times of righteous indignation, here's the problem. Righteous anger can easily go south, can it? It can easily turn into an unrighteous anger. So the Apostle Paul tells us to be angry. Then he gives us three warnings. And here's the second thing he tells us. Not only does he say that we are to display righteous anger, but in the midst of that, I am to disarm an unrighteous anger. I am to be very careful of unrighteous anger. And he says in Ephesians, notice how he puts it, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. You see, the Apostle Paul knows this. While we should walk in righteous indignation because of our flesh, because of our propensity to sin, it is very easy for that righteous anger to become unrighteous and turn into sin. So what is it? Righteous anger is that anger directed to the injustice of people and God. Unrighteous anger rises from a personal injured pride, spite, malice, animosity, and the spirit of revenge. That's unrighteous anger. Well, righteous anger may be an injustice done to other people. Unrighteous anger comes about when I don't like how people treated me, and I'm going to do something about it. And it works itself into malice, animosity, resentment, revenge, and spite. So here's what we need to do. Paul says, be careful. Don't let this righteous anger turn to sin. Don't let it be sin. Don't let it fester inside of you. That which we began as righteous, don't you let it become infected by your flesh. James tells us the same thing. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me give you an illustration Let's say a person has a righteous indignation against abortion and the abortion industry. And that person is thinking, you know, this is wrong. He stands up and he states that it's wrong. He's standing on the convictions. But something happens inside of him. It becomes to get twisted. And not only does he think that this is wrong, but you know, something must be done about this injustice and I'm going to do it. And he makes a bomb and he blows up a clinic. That doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. That is sin. Because the righteousness of God would be one who's indignant against it, but begins to stand for life and begins to speak with people and pray for people and build relationships with people and share the gospel with people and let the Holy Spirit do his work in them. And so if we're not careful, Paul's saying it can turn to sin. He says also, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it's at that point that roots of bitterness can become to spread within you. And when you do that, you give the enemy an opportunity. The devil can get a foothold by using anger that may have begun rightly, 
but now has morphed to something that is unrighteous. And he can take that anger and enslave you with it. In verse 31, the Apostle Paul tells us what this anger looks like in our life. What does unrighteous anger look like? How does it display itself? In verse 31, he gives us a number of characteristics about it. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let me unpack this. Let all bitterness, the word there for bitterness means grudges, resentment. Let grudges and resentment be put away from you. Wrath, rage. This is the kind of rage when somebody cuts you off on Market Street and you let them have it. It's over by the time you get to work. But unless that person keeps cutting you off all the way to work. But it's that kind of wrath that raises up. Put it away. The anger is what we're talking about um, earlier. The clamor. You know what the word clamor means? It's interesting. It means temper tantrum. It means don't throw a temper tantrum. Put your temper tantrums away because here's the truth. We can all use temper tantrums, temper tantrums to manipulate people into what we want. Then he says put away from you slander. The word there means evil speech. In the Greek it literally means a tongue poisoned with evil. Uh, no, a tongue dipped in poison for evil. That's the picture. And what is he telling us? Put all these things away. Malice is a word that just catches all the other things that anger falls into. So he says, here's what you do. You walk in righteous anger. When unrighteous anger begins to develop in your life, put it away. Put it away. Now, what does that look like? How do we put it away practically? Dr. David Jeremiah, dealing with this issue of anger comes up with five ways that he talks about dealing with unrighteous anger, how to manage it. I'm giving him credit for this. I've used this sometime years ago, and, and it's very, very helpful. So I just want you to see how helpful this can be. It's a very practical step of what we can do to put anger away. There are five things. Here's what he says. Number one, don't nurse your anger. I love this. Don't nurse it. You know what you do when you nurse unrighteous anger? Is you raise it up. You're taking care of it. You're nurturing it. You're feeding it. You're comforting it. It becomes your pet, which eventually becomes your monster that destroys you. And how do you nurse it? Well, you collect all these little twigs and you build a nest of this anger and this anger and this anger. And let me tell you, when you build a nest, something hatches. And when something hatches, something's flying out. And when you nurse your anger, it will come out. Don't nurse it. Secondly, he says, don't rehearse your anger. I really like this point. Don't rehearse it. Don't rehearse it means don't keep going over it in your mind, over and over and over, and rehearsing the hurts that were done to you and how you're going to get even, and you're getting madder and madder and madder. And this may be something that happened years ago, but you not only rehearse it in your mind, you rehearse it with all your friends. Every time they see you, you tell them the same story over and over, how somebody hurt you. I'm thinking of a man right now from years ago. Every time I saw him, all he talked about was how somebody stole from him. How some, I thought, you know what that man needs to do? He needs to put a period at the end of that sentence and go to the next chapter. That's getting old. But we rehearse it, and we keep living it in our minds. I'm nursing it. I'm rehearsing it. Now, let me just say one other thing that's a fallacy. This is a statement that you have said, I have said, we have said it together, and it's probably not the only time we're ever going to say this. 
I'm going to make this statement, and I want you to be honest because we're in church, and I want you to tell me if you've ever said that. Here it is. <sighs> he makes me so mad. How many of you ever said that? Maybe it's not he. She makes me so mad. They make me so mad. Don't say the name, okay? So here's the deal. Nobody can make you mad. Do you hear that? Nobody can make you mad. You see, what people do is they do things that measure the anger in you. Your husband doesn't make you mad. He measures the anger that's in you. Your wife doesn't make you mad. She measures the anger that's in her. Your children, well, they may make you mad, but uh, <laughs> it still measures what's in you. People can't make you mad. Listen carefully. Being angry is a choice. It's a willful choice. And you choose the anger that you have. Don't rehearse it. Thirdly, don't converse your anger. Don't use your anger to tear people down. Don't use words that rip people apart. You're so angry with them. And what you do is you use unwholesome speech. In chapter 4, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says this, Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth except that which is edifying for the moment. Let the kind of speech that comes out that builds people up, not tears them down. And one of the marks of an angry person is they like to rip everybody apart. Have you noticed that? Nobody can do anything right. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's bad. Everybody's an idiot. I've used that myself. Because anger comes out of the way you speak about people and to people. Don't converse it. Listen, when anger comes up, don't nurse it. Don't hold it tight. Put it away. When anger comes up, don't rehearse it in your mind. Put it away. When anger comes up, don't converse it. And say the first thing that comes to your mind because you usually end up resenting that, don't you? And here's the fourth thing. I like this one. Don't disperse your anger. Don't disperse it. What do you mean by that? That's that word clamor. Don't throw a temper tantrum. Because you're not getting your way. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing a little child in a restaurant or on an airplane or in a grocery store that's throwing a temper tantrum that's lying on the floor and screaming and hollering because she can't get her way. And most people stop looking at the child and who's their attention go to? The parents. What are you going to do something about this? We think that's terrible. Let me tell you, one thing that's worse than a child throwing a temper tantrum is an adult throwing a temper tantrum. Now, we're very sophisticated at it. And there are a lot of ways that we throw tantrums that we use to manipulate people. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to confess where I fall in this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have just a party of confession here this morning, okay? So I'm going to ask you, what form of manipulation do you use in a tantrum? Let me give you some of the illustrations. Some people like to pout when they get to, can't get their way. I'm a powder. I pout. How many other powders out there? Come on, you can be honest. Don't pout about it. Just raise your hand. Come on. Okay, you got some powders out here, okay? Some people pout. Some people get quiet. They give the quiet treatment, the silent treatment. How many of you do that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Some of you just, some of you just kind of withdraw. 
You completely remove yourself from the situation. You go to another room, and you know what? I'm going to be by myself for the rest of the day. Hmm. Yeah, how many of you do that? Some of you do that, don't you? Yeah. Some of you want to talk it out. And it doesn't matter the volume. You're going to talk it out. Some of you don't believe in raising your hand in church. How many of you like that? Raise your hand. Oh, sure you don't. Yeah. But here's the thing. We can use this to disperse our anger. And we use it to manipulate other people. And that's a sin. Because it makes it all about me. When my daughter Leslie graduated from Topsail High, the ceremony was at Trask at UNCW. And if you've had a child graduate from a high school around here and they've used Trask at UNCW, you know all the graduates on the floor, everybody's sitting around all up in the bleachers in the area. Then afterwards, all the students go out on the grass outside and you're supposed to find your child among this horde of teenagers, okay? And everybody's exiting the same way. And so it is shoulder to shoulder. You're cramped. You're walking down. Everybody's just walking like this. You're going down the steps and this steps and this steps. And you're surrounded by people. You can't help hearing everybody's conversation because everybody who talks, everybody else can hear. And so we're walking down, and there was this couple in front of us. I don't know, have any idea who they are, but their daughter graduated. And apparently what happened was she went to the bathroom and he went and found a place to sit and they texted each other and when she got there she did not like the seats he picked and while we're walking down she just said i just want you to know i'm mad at you he never even looked at her just kept walking (laughs) and then she said to him i cannot believe you picked those seats you know i wasn't going to say anything But as I sat there and thought about it, the angrier and the angrier I got, you always do this. Everybody's listening. I'm not eavesdropping. Yeah, I'm listening. You always do this. And then she started ripping him apart, just started tearing his character down. Everybody around, and they're just taking their little steps, and she just did all the way down the steps. And then she says this. I love this part. She says, I just want to inform you. I'm not speaking to you the rest of the day. I saw a little smile go up on his face. <laughs> just a little bit, you know. And here's what I thought. That lady did all four of those. Right there in that place. She nursed it. She rehearsed it. She conversed it. She dispersed it before she got to the car. And he had a blessed day the rest of the day. <laughs> when it comes to anger, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Somebody wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that which you are wolfing down is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. The devil knows that. If he can get you to move from righteous anger to unrighteous anger, you devour yourself. And everyone around you knows you as an angry, unattractive person. 
But here's the fourth thing we need to do. Fifth thing we need to do. Reverse your anger. Reverse it. It's a willful choice. Again, you reverse your anger. It's what the Lord Jesus did, did he not? Jesus taught us this. When you're persecuted, pray for your enemies. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. If they tell you to carry something one mile, carry it two miles. If they take your cloak, give them your other clothing as well. Jesus taught us always to reverse our anger. And this unrighteous anger can become righteous anger if we're wise. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. This is an interesting verse. As you read the first part of it, you're going to say, I get it, I get it. When you get down to the end of it, you're like saying, what? If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. We're thinking, okay, I, I get this. If he hungers, I'll feed him. If he's thirsty, I'll give him something to drink. But what is this coals of fire on the head? We don't understand the context of that, but this was a cultural thing in this day. The Egyptians had a practice, and this is what they would do. If they did something that they felt was wrong, and they felt remorse for it, or they felt repentance for it, here's what they did. They would take a thing, a metal, and attach it to their head with a strap under their chin. Then they would place hot coals in this pan, and they would walk around town with these hot coals. It's very uncomfortable, to say the least. It's very humiliating. And everybody that saw that person saw, well, that's a person who is sorry for something they've done. And they're demonstrating it publicly. Here's what Paul is saying. When you and I reverse anger, it's like putting coals on their head. When somebody mistreats me and I treat them with respect, it's like shame and coals on their head. Wow, I said that to him and he did that to me. When somebody unjustly accuses you of something and you treat them as a friend, it's like coals on the head. And what it is, it's letting them see that you are reversing what they expected you to give in the first place. The Lord Jesus did this. Think of this. God's anger is only righteous anger. His anger is never an unrighteous anger. His anger is always holy. It's always guided by righteousness. His anger is righteous all the time. And when Jesus went to the cross for you and me, you know what he did? He reversed the righteous anger of God from us to his son. We deserved his wrath. Jesus reversed that. He received the wrath. We got the grace. We deserve the penalty of death. Jesus reversed that. We got the life. He got the death. He reversed righteousness. We received the righteousness of Christ. Jesus received the condemnation for our sin. And what Jesus did on the cross, he reversed God's righteous anger in our own lives and poured it out on his son so that you and I could be children of the Holy God. 
He reversed righteous anger. Let me tell you what else he did on the cross. He reversed unrighteous anger. He was sent to that cross because of the envy of the religious leaders. And he died at the hand of wicked people. And in spite of all that they've done to Jesus, he reversed every bit of it. When he was in the cross, he gave good for evil. When he was on the cross, he gave life for death. When Jesus was on the cross, he brought blessings for curses, compassion for aggression, grace for wrath, love for hate, light for darkness, forgiveness for resentment, eternal life for eternal death. Let me tell you, it was his willful choice to do that, to obey his Father, to do those for you and me. And if you're a child of God and you're purchased by the blood of Jesus, you are set free from all of these things. And if you're a child of God and you're purchased by the blood of Jesus, your anger is to be reversed in your life. When you leave here today, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. Somebody might pull out in front of you and you can reverse that anger and bless them instead of curse them. Your wife might put you to the test today and you reverse it and you bless her instead of being angry with her. Your husband, you bless him instead of being angry with him. You make a willful choice to put your anger away and walk in the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus Christ, you can do it. Why? Because you're free. You are free. He has purchased your freedom on the cross. That prison cell is wide open. You do not need to stay in it anymore. You are free. He has given you the address to the palace. You're not expected to live in the squalors of this world. You're free. You're sons and daughters of the king. And you can enter into his presence anytime you want to. You are free. Don't live like a slave and the enemy is going to use all these things against you but I want you to remember the freedom that you have because of Jesus we are free from fear because his perfect love cast out all fear we are free from discouragement because at his right hand there is joy forever we are free from worry because we have all we need for life and godliness in this world we are free from guilt because there is now no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. We are free from temptation because we will not be tempted beyond our ability. And there is always a certain way of escape. We are free from resentment because Jesus doesn't count our sins against us. So we don't count other sins against us. And we are free from anger. Because Jesus is our Prince of Peace who reverses anger for good. You're free. So as we conclude this series, there are many other things that the enemy wants to do to enslave you, but you're free. Make a choice to walk in the freedom, child of God. Make a choice to only carry the righteous indignation that reflects the holiness of the Father. And do so in a way that honors his character. 
but you're free. So how do we close this out? If you're a child of God, you can experience the freedom between now and when you see him face to face. And because we're children of God, we can raise a hallelujah in the presence of our enemy. We can raise a hallelujah and darkness will have to flee. We can raise a hallelujah. Our weapon is our melody. We can stand. We can declare. We can sing. We can worship our King.